Welcome to a Spotlight Innovation episode, where we feature two interviews with people who will share how their innovative ideas are making a difference in the palliative care world. Our first guest, Bev Foster, is the co-founder and executive director of the Room 217 Foundation. She's an experienced performer, songwriter, and music educator, and we talk about the healing power of music across cultures and how each of us can bring music to our work. Our second guests are Dr. Julie McIntyre and Shelley O'Connor, a retired family physician and active social worker, respectively. They're teaching an education course called Last Aid, which is designed for the public. We talk about what the course entails, how it exemplifies a public health approach to dying, and how it can be used in every community to make a difference. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. I'm excited to welcome Bev Foster to our podcast today. Yay! Hey, it's great to be here, Sien. Thanks for the invitation. Bev, you, your innovation won Best Innovation this year at the Montreal International Pedicure Congress. Congratulations. And Thanks it was so for, much, Sien. Yeah, and it was for this thing called Room 217, which you created. So why don't you tell our audience what that's about? Yeah, the Room 217 Foundation is a social enterprise. Um, we're very interested in empowering caregivers to use music in their regular practice. And that's really what this is all about. The goal, or the, I guess the vision we have really is to um, enhance and improve the caregiving experience with music. Music's such a powerful um, uh, human phenomenon, really. And to engage music uh, when somebody is, um, you know, not feeling well, at the very least, and in this conversation and in this context, we'll say when people are palliative and maybe even imminently dying end of life, it's just such a powerful tool. Uh, the, the, it reaches into every single domain. The other thing that's so great about music is that it, in terms of the care experience itself, it, it can actually support the person receiving care the individual receiving care, and also all of those in the circle of care. It's very, very powerful. Um, it has very powerful capacity to reach people in places that other interventions, other tools, other maybe even maybe even medications. If I'm probably treading a bit of a line there, but it, it, it can go places. Certainly, um, it, it reaches into the psychosocial and spiritual kinds of domains like nothing else. And one of the huge things in, in palliative and end-of-life care music can do is help close relationships, what Dr. Ira, Ira Bayat calls relationship completion. So we can use songs to say thank you, to say goodbye, to say I forgive you what you forgive me, to say I love you, um, especially when people perhaps are medicated um, and or have lost words, even in, in situations where people become nonverbal, those songs can almost become those the, the, the communication piece. Yeah. And what's the story for what was the catalyst? For oh, for room create? 217. Yeah, great yeah. question, because room 217 is a real room <laughs> in a real hospital, not far from where I live, where my dad died um, over 20 years ago now. So it's 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 some time ago. And 
You know, as a musician, I had seen music work in a lot of situations, you know, when you're, when you are a musician and performing with people, you, you tune in, you, you tune into who you're, you're, you're doing music with and, and around, but I've got to say, CN, I, I had never seen anything quite like somebody imminently dying and trying to sing along with us. So, you know, the backstory is dad was, um, dad had had a, a long, well, actually not too long journey with a terminal illness and uh, music was the way he and I connected in life. And uh, that was how I could really care, um, care for and with him and around him. Um, and certainly when he was like imminently dying, my brothers and sisters and mom, we were around his bedside singing his songs. And we, you know, again, it, this was life changing for me in the sense that I just watched what it did you know, I might watch a bit differently how, how he was breathing, how, how with the music, how he was trying to make this guttural sound I'd really never heard before as he was subcutaneously morphined. But he was really trying to connect with us and sing with us his favorite songs. And I watched that, how it comforted him, how it connected us. And in a sense, it was, um, well, it was sort of that final piece as a family we could do around his, his bedside. So for us, we, it was a lot of singing, a lot of humming. We didn't know the words. We just went la, la, la. <laughs> and that was just fine. It was really music being um, that, that thing that was present that bound us together. And so how did Room 217 start from there? Well, here's the thing. I left that night and I just kind of went, you know, dad's been 18 months in this large Toronto hospital and now in this smaller hospital. Nobody offered him music. Okay, so I, I was left with two questions, right? So is, do people not get it, <laughs> how powerful it is? Or could it be, or and or, could it be that they just don't have the tools? Now, 20 years ago, we, we, we weren't pulling our phones out and play, making playlists quite like we are today. So like, let's face it, that the accessibility's changed quite a bit. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a really important question to ask because, um, as a family caregiver, and you know that's really how I come at Room Two Seventeen as as a musician and family caregiver. You know, I had four kids at home. I was supporting my mom, and her mom had dementia at the same time. So, like, we were trying to just juggle all that, and like, like, okay, make playlist wasn't on even the top ten things in my day. If you know what I mean, and so. You know, it's, it's, I, I get it. I get why it might not be sort of first instinct for people. And yet that experience, just, it was so profoundly changed me. And, um, and, you know, it's not like I hadn't done, you know, music for people who were sick and even sometimes people who, who were terminal, but I mean, I wasn't in the room, right. I would do recordings for them. So it's, it just really, it really, I was just, I guess, catapulted into this, just seeking the answers to those questions. That was the first part. And then those early years, you know, we, we did, um, we created two or three albums, I guess it was three albums to start with. We sort of, I really wanted, I wanted to understand how music worked therapeutically um, and, and its capacity, right? So for example, in our, in the music we create for palliative care, we, um, we slow the music down to 60 beats per minute to entrain with resting heart rate, which that that therefore informs how the people that play or the performers actually record the music. 
right? So we're trying to match breath. That's That was probably with data. That's the thing I felt the most was how it could accompany his breath. The other really important thing for me is the aesthetic. How do we make the space beautiful? Dad died in the hospital room. You know, it wasn't wasn't beautiful. <laughs> it wasn't ugly, but it wasn't beautiful, right? And how do you create that space so it doesn't feel cold and clinical and I don't know, kind of, you know, that sort of paint color on the wall. Um, and so that's what I'm interested in too, is bringing some beauty into the dying spaces. And that that really can change the atmosphere for everybody in the room, including the care providers. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's how we started and uh, and we've developed really three prongs to it. And so the first is we develop real products that people can use. So we started in palliative care and we now have 24 palliative care albums, um, each an hour long. We also do education. So we just had our 17th conference in Vancouver this fall. And, um, excuse me, and we have developed a, a standardized training, a 52 hour standardized training for caregivers. Uh, we've trained more than 2000 in that to date. And um, we have like, you know, monthly webinars and we have a terrific resource page. We do skills days. Uh, in various care settings, a number of educational, you know, we do a lot of speaking, podcasts, webinars, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then our third sort of area of work, which is which is newish, um, is certification. That For us, that would be the bullseye, where we could really now help people, individuals integrate music care into their regular care practice, uh, and also to integrate music into organizations so that it becomes the warp and woof. It's incredible. Um, uh, seems like it shouldn't have taken so much time and effort uh, to for the world to realize the power of music in healthcare, right? And in health, um, living and dying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so thank you for shining a light so brightly on this important uh tool that I think some of us don't realize can be used in these scenarios. You have so beautifully articulated our work mm -hmm. um, because music is something that we can all use. It's mm -hmm. something that's just part of what we do and who we are as human beings. And um, the, we've developed this music care approach. That's why it's taken a little bit longer because when you're entering into health and social care spaces, um, especially doing the, some of the stuff we're doing or with, with teaching, you have to actually have the evidence, you have to show it, you know, it just takes time to, to develop and build. So we've actually developed an approach called the music care approach. And what it means is, um, and notice it's an approach, it's not a clinical practice. It's much like the palliative care approach, actually. We, we kind of, actually that inspired it because everybody can use it, right? Everybody can come to the table um, and your interest is in death and dying. And, and comfort. So in music care, our interest is in using music and care. So what we say is it's the intentional use of music by anyone to improve uh, health, health and well-being for yourself or in the care of others. We've actually developed this approach uh, with quite an evidence-based uh, uh, approach, as a matter of fact. And we've we've actually developed 10 domains of music care delivery. So you say, what does it look like? Well, it could look like a community musician coming in. So somebody who um, 
maybe a professional musician coming in uh, to, to, to provide some entertainment or to come in and um, play in a lobby or in a hospice, a hospice, like in a hospice area, or it might be kids in a school coming into a care setting and, and, or a long-term care place it might be a, you know, a ukulele group, that kind of thing, or it could be professional practitioners like a music therapist or, or, you know, other, other medical practitioners using music as an intervention. It could look like what we would call musicking, people humming, whistling, singing, um, and not planned at all, or it could be very programmed. We have 10 of these domains. I just mentioned a few, but it's it, we we believe there's a lot of space for people to use music. And as you pointed out, you don't have to be a musician to use music. As a matter of fact, what we say to people is it's more important that you use music as presence. The average person who wants to infuse music into the experience of either caregiving or caring or being a patient, uh, how does one do that? Do you have any tips for someone who doesn't like, I'm not a musician. I have no music abilities. <laughs> so how would someone like me bring music into um, the experience of patients who are living with progressive illness and dying from them? couple of tips. First one for me is humming. Mm. A lot of people, especially with things like the voice and American Idol, they, they, you know, people are intimidated sometimes to sing. Mm. So just hum. Humming as presence is so important. And if you can actually sync up your humming with people's breathing and what we call entrainment, you actually connect with them um, in, in sync. Right. And and I've watched it before where you can actually hum or breathe in, in sync with somebody and actually alter their breathing, speed mm -hmm. it up, slow it down, calm them down, right? So humming is a great way way to, to engage in music care. Another way is to share a significant song. Mm -hmm. That's really, for palliative care, that's awesome because that could, that could be part of legacy building, uh, mm -hmm. you know, life review, that kind of thing. Um, so just that opens up all kinds of conversations, listening to a song together, but just mm -hmm. even sharing that significant song opens up a person's narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, that's really important too. Certainly there's playlists. It, people can create very curated playlists and that sort of thing. So those are just a couple of strategies, but I mean, we have, mm -hmm. we have dozens of strategies like that. I, I love that you call it a music care approach because we talk so much, like you said, about a palliative care approach, which is this idea that you don't have to be a specialist to provide palliative care. Well, you don't have to be a musician, professional musician to bring music into the care. I really love that. Recently, one of my patients told me who was breathless, who is breathless, what he does to treat his breathlessness is he sings. And his, when he sings his old country, um, not country music, his, in his old country, I think it's Italy, when he brings out the songs from his past and he sings them very slowly, it paces his own breathing, which I thought was super cool. And I wanted to tell you one more thing that my husband, who's a surgeon, he plays music in the OR and everyone who works in the OR and the patients have commented that they love that he's brought music into this very scary, sterile, um, high stress place and makes people feel more comfortable. 
Well, and that's just a really simple thing, isn't it? It makes the OR room more beautiful, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Bev, Bev I, I am. Can you tell us more about the, the the piece of work that you that you won the innovation award for? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, we've uh, I, I told you one of the areas of work is is around creating actual products or, or music care resources for people to use. On the palliative care side of things, we started by using Western music. I mean, it's what it's what I'm familiar with. It's it's what our team, you know, at the beginning was familiar with, and it's been great. But, you know, palliative care physicians and workers at the conferences said, we love this stuff. Can you give us something for boomers and for newcomers to Canada? (laughs) Right. This was probably about 10 years ago. And they just said, we just like we have new populations coming in and we just need music that would be appropriate. So, you know, here's the one thing I know is. I, you know, my cultural competency was limited when you're talking about doing, you know, music for newcomers to Canada, I needed help. So that's, we, we, we decided we were going to make a collection. So a collection for us is six albums um, around, uh, you know, intercultural kinds of sounds. Right. Um, And so, yeah, it was really interesting. So I hired uh, a couple of guys to help, uh, with this one is a music therapist um and the other is a music producer musician and and they they both are into world music and and um you know they're very skilled at this and so we had to sort of do this design right so we we figured out what soothing sounds were through focus groups of and we, we hired master musicians from these these various cultures that we identified and then we um Made, made six albums and it was just really, really a cool process. So the innovation that I pitched uh, was really about our process because what we believed was the process we used to, to, this was a creative process, but actually we're kind of going, I think that this listen, co-create, share process could actually be a pathway towards more intercultural um, you know, projects, offerings in in palliative care for sure and in health and social care in general so it, it was really quite quite a powerful um it was quite powerful for us as a team you know we had more than we had I think 30 musicians involved in the project and they they were all just it was so meaningful for everybody because I mean everybody everybody's culture deals with death and dying right and so to learn about how the various cultural groups sort of what's a soothing sound and that sort of thing and I just learned so much about intercultural collaboration and that you know when you come in a sense humbly with humility together um, and collaborate you just you just get something better by working together so that was that was our project so what were the kinds of sounds and where can our listeners find this music but you can find that on our website, actually, like we, there's a poster there, like we, we presented this and we just, we chart it all because every album probably had at least six or seven types of instruments that were sort of like, you know, representational of their cultural sounds. Because instead of using songs, we, iconic songs, we used iconic sounds, right? Um, you know, like what, because say in a, in a place like East India, that's, that music, what, you know, it was it was probably more important that we use the sitar for that group because that sort of represented that that sound, that cultural sound. Um, so people can go on our website and, and and find the sounds. You could you can absolutely 
purchase if you do hard copy on our website or if you want to stream it it's on spotify apple music amazon it's on all of the the streaming services um and the collection of course the art we, we put all of our music under the artist room 217 if they want to get the music they can um, access it off of our music care connect app where all of our products are now digitally available. Uh, so you can get the, the app that's called Music Care Connect off of Google Play or the Apple Store. Can you just leave us with, what has the impact been? You've been doing this for a while. You did th this new project with um, you know, different cultural sounds. Like overall, like what has your take home been on the impact of, of all this work and, and what sort of keeps you motivated to keep doing it? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, um, I guess I'm probably even more passionate today than I was 20 years ago. I mean, it was, I just, I see the results. I was speaking with somebody in a long-term care home this week in BC and, you know, she's taken our training and I I just watch how it changes her day in engaging with residents, you know, nonverbal residents, but she's learned how to engage them with music. And she, and she would say, I, I have, I'm tone deaf. But she, she has learned how to just music and to not get too concerned about having to perform in the right key and all that kind of stuff, just using strategies for engagement, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, I, and I think some of some of the I mean, in terms of the impact, we, we were very specific about impact. So I could I could show you like quality of life measures that, that have been impacted, like reduced agitation and. Um, pain distraction and that sort of thing, or social cohesion with the singing programs, every, every one of our programs is that. But I think, yeah, you know, what keeps me going is um, I want to see music become more of a primary approach to care. Mm -hmm. we, we've gone backwards. I mean, you know, with COVID, we've just gone backwards. And I, I believe music is that thing that can actually get us back on track to a more human and you know social model of care because music is such a human phenomenon but i mean that that's what that's what gets me up in the morning and keeps me going bev thank you so much for talking with us today thank you so much for having me and all the best in your work now let's welcome dr julie mcintyre and shelly o'connor to the show to talk about how they are bringing a public education course called Blast Aid to Canada. Hello. Hi. Hi. It was a quick hi. Pleasure to meet you both. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we're excited because we wanted to use some of uh, the episodes this season to feature other really great innovations and projects that fit with our philosophy of sharing the power and educating the public. So we're excited to talk to both of you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And we'd love to hear about this program that you're involved in called Last Aid. It's a palliative care education program. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah. We need to clarify that we didn't yeah. uh, we didn't start Last Aid. Last Aid was, um, a, I think, a PhD thesis project by a German palliative care physician, George Bollig, in uh, 2008. And he started uh, the courses. The first course was in 20. 14 and they've been rolling out in 20 countries now so we were we're just the ones who have tried to uh, bring it to well starting in Ontario we if, if we can we'd like to it to spread across the country yes this program last aid is so interesting to us because it's designed for the public and as you know the waiting room revolution is all about engaging the public I'm curious 
what made you want to teach this? And how is it different than what you were teaching before? Can I pause to start, if that's okay? It's the sweet spot, uh, Sam Mancian. Um, I've been in uh, community work for 30 so years. And I, just like Sammy had said in her podcast, people are saying, I wish I'd come here sooner. I wish I'd known this. Uh, we're getting referrals on Fridays for people who have died by Monday. There's lots of fear. You know, you set up a display and people avoid um, you like the plague if they know mm -hmm. you're from hospice. I'm from Hospice Waterloo Region. And um, this course, George's course, we believe is the sweet spot. It's four 45 minute modules. Um, and we can talk to a little bit about what's covered. But I've searched high and low for how we draw the public in because I believe the public is are, as you said, the agents of change. They're the ones. I've worked with the healthcare system, got frustrated with the healthcare system. Um, and we did an advanced care planning project for three years across the system, including the public. The hospital system was the worst. <laughs> there was no change happening there, none. So uh, that's why George's is so compelling. Uh, this It may not be perfect, but it's four 45-minute modules to entice that worker in the office who's afraid to look up when somebody comes in whose husband has just died or um, somebody in the community who has somebody in their family that they don't know what to do or what to say. So they don't go, they don't go and visit. So those are the people we're trying to get. Mm. Oh, I know so many of those people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, you know, palliative care has been taught for like 47 years in Canada, ever since Balfour Mount started. And if we wait for the, the poor healthcare system, especially right now to provide mm -hmm. it um, to, you know, the, accessibility and the adequacy that we need, it's going to take a long time. So, um, and as you know, when, when you don't understand something and we see it with viruses and vaccines and different cultures, if you don't understand it, you tend to fear it. And so we're hoping that if we can um, increase the understanding, we can decrease the fear and kind of take back that traditional knowledge about end of life issues and, and have the public um, support each other and, and with more knowledge. I'm so curious to know more. Okay, what is this? What is it that we're talking about? That's the sweet spot. Go ahead, Julie. Okay, well, the actual course is about three and a half hours. I, I like to say it's like the a first aid course type of course, but for the end of life. So it's concise. It's we're trying to and We've done a lot of kind of rewriting for our own script to adapt it to Ontario because, you know, if it's in 20 different countries, people are going to have different perspectives. So um, the first module is on dying as a normal process. And we are trying to just explain just like birth and pregnancy and labor, there are recognizable stages that you can see in, and death has stages too that can be recognized and maybe even anticipated so that we can understand them, know how to deal with them, not be surprised, not be afraid. And so then we go into the second part, which is um, planning ahead. We talk about, and you know, as you know, there's a huge misconception about palliative care and what it is and what it is not. Um, so we try and explain that and hospices, how the network works. Mm. And then we get into some advanced care planning and why it's important to have a substitute decision maker, have the con important conversations and so on. Julie, I just want to mention about the second module. That's where I think your seven steps fit so nicely in the conversation about the system and about your wishes and have conversations. And mm -hmm. I always tell our audiences, 
to follow your podcast for that reason, because it just, it resonates so much with what we're yeah. trying to teach people. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We do that too. And uh, the, the third one is about relieving symptoms. So what symptoms are common? What signs are common uh, at the end of life? And uh, what can you do about them? And, and what will, you know, what you, will you see the medical team doing about them? Mm -hmm. The last module is final goodbyes. So we talk about rituals and traditions and grief mm -hmm. and, and trying to normalize mm -hmm. that process. The teams that are facilitating are uh, usually one doctor or nurse, and then like a social worker or a chaplain, uh, hospice worker, death doula, and so on. Somebody who's familiar with the area. And so we're trying to, um, this year we've rolled out 22 uh, pilot courses. Yeah, can I just say something about the course that makes it different? I think the context of this is really about compassionate communities. The, mm -hmm. the, the angle we're coming at this with is what can you do to support people rather than relying on the medical system. It's not an either or, but it's a together. And mm -hmm. so the whole course is set up. We try and use very simple language, not all of the, the healthcare language, but mm -hmm. really focusing in on what can you do? How can you support? What do you mm -hmm. do when you see that person in pain? What do you do when they say they don't, they're not well? Or how do you communicate with them? How do you listen to people who are struggling? So it's not, it's that's the focus. It's not on when do you go to, go to the doctor and get him to fix it. No mm -hmm. offense, Sammy. It's, it's what can you do to support people? Yeah. And, and it's about not just addressing the physical side, but the emotional mm -hmm. and the spiritual and, and what's important to the you know, one of the main things that, you know, with advanced care planning, what's important, what gives meaning to their life and how can you help them have it mm -hmm. at their end, and how can they, you help them as caretakers help their loved ones? You know, there's so many parallels with what we're doing. I see it as, you know, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking, gosh, we're running along the same tracks here, right? Yeah. Um, the pieces about um, normalizing and inviting the public to speak openly and honestly about this, you know, taboo subject. Uh, and empowering them and activating them to know that they're part of the potential solution um, and that we can look inwardly and not just externally for help, that we are the help we sometimes need as, you know, as people, we have a lot to harness. Yeah. Uh, we just need the information and someone to help point us in the right direction. And we're pretty powerful, even without being formally trained caregivers, as citizens of the world can be uh, incredible, uh, you know, therapeutic interventions uh, exactly. with knowledge. So you've been training facilitators and they've been delivering it. Do you have any sense of the numbers of in the past, you know, year and a half or so, how many sessions you've done to date? So we, we just have these eight teams that um, covering the, the province that um, impairs medical and non-medical. And mm -hmm. so we've just been piloting it. We've been testing it. As mm -hmm. um, Julie said, the bigger challenge for us is, is that we have these slides that are somebody else's mm -hmm. and trying to um, adapt them, you know, to the Ontario law or to, to just the way mm -hmm. we speak. So we've been doing that. So I think we've done pretty 25, 30 of these already. Um, I, I think the challenge is to try and get to the general public, not mm -hmm. the people who are already have already lost somebody or are um, caring for somebody at the end of life. I think if we could get 
further upstream. Um, mm -hmm. That would be my goal with this. So that's what we're trying to work on. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, you talked about the four sessions here, the latter two are more about sort of end stage, but we're trying to go upstream. So I wonder what your experience has been when you really talk about death as, as a normal part, or even the idea of, of seeing ahead, the, the zoom out that we call. Has that been well received or is that is that still a sort of a hard pill for the public to swallow when you've done these sessions? I think there's, when you get out into the public, there is such an appetite for this information. I think you might've said that people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And then, then they hear it. And it's like a light bulb uh, goes on for them. It's just getting them in the room. That is the challenge yeah. is getting them in the room. So yeah. these modules are not necessarily for for people who are going through it at the mm -hmm. time. You you want this to be available to any like it in high school. I think yeah. and they are trying to they have done some pilots with kids and as not surprisingly kids seem to latch onto this stuff way better than adults yeah yeah so that if if we could get it into schools and not a, a lot of the people who've been attending are people who are um, maybe death doulas or work therapists mm -hmm. or you mm -hmm. know know they need to know this stuff mm -hmm. but we're just trying to we talk about kind of jane and joe public we're just trying to get the average mm -hmm. person um to have this kind of comfort level. Yeah, it's interesting because we have the same challenge. Um, we, with our, you know, seven keys, keep um, infiltrating healthcare conferences and, you know, <laughs> healthcare providers seem to want to know about it. And we know how to get our foot in the door of healthcare audiences, but it's different trying to get in front of the public um, and talk about these things. And so I think your challenges are the same challenges that we've had. How do we get this information to the public early on in life so yeah. that we can begin to shift the culture around the fears and trepidation about dying, which is a normal part of being a human? And everyone's going to get there. I know we all know that, but people will get there kicking and screaming if they haven't had a chance to know what happens and what doesn't happen so that they're not so scared. Exactly. People are so scared of dying. I'm no one. I don't want to be dead. I'm not ready to be dead. But with all the work that I've done, I can honestly say, I can honestly say I'm not scared of dying. I'm not ready. I don't, I don't want it to happen right now, but when my time comes, I am not scared. I have seen way too many natural deaths <laughs> that, you know, um, have silver linings and beautiful wow. moments. And there's a pattern and a predictability to what dying looks like. There is a roadmap that I can have and anyone else can have. Yeah. It doesn't have to be such um, a scary unknown, like a black box. I, I love that you're opening that black box for people. Although there is one of the slides is called shared uncertainty. And um, especially in this day and age when our healthcare system is so stressed, we, we try and make it clear that you know, while, especially for advanced care planning, you can say all the things that you'd like, and these are your, you know, your wishes and so on. But there may be a chance that those aren't opportunities aren't going to be available to you. And, and, mm -hmm. and still, whatever scenario you've talked about with your substitute decision maker, it may not be possible for them to make up. And so it still can be stressful. So, but we think that just 
the, there's so much, even if that doesn't work out, you know, as perfectly as you would like, there's mm -hmm. so much benefit in just the learning the knowledge and bringing people together, having the conversation, you know, the whole we're social animals and mm -hmm. we need to discuss this kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. share. Mm -hmm. in, in a perfect world, we'd have some huge public health campaign yeah, seatbelts, non-smoking, yes. whatever, and to focus on people uh, becoming familiar again yeah. with what dying looks like, what what mm -hmm. death is, you know, because that comfort level is not there. People yeah. who I talk to, unless they've experienced somebody dying, they don't know anything about the system. They're shocked when mm -hmm. they find, oh, I have to talk to so and so, and how do I do this, and how do I get into a hospice bed? Like all of that stuff is so strange to people because mm -hmm. they, they're just not going there so we have to do mm -hmm. something publicly to help people uh, move forward and and yeah. we just haven't gotten there yet yeah. you know, the other thing I'm realizing is that when we talk about dying like when we say the word dying most people uh leap to the final days and hours yeah and I think people don't appreciate that dying is a phase it is a chapter of life that's not just those moments before death. Yes, when breathing changes and there's physical signs of actively dying in the very terminal stage, but a person begins down the descent of dying months before they're actually dead, usually when it's from either frailty or normal aging or from a progressive life-limiting illness. And I think we ignore the signs of dying because they're clouded by treatments and by you know other things um medications and tests and discussions about minutiae and the foxholes like you said yeah. that we miss out on identifying that dying has begun months before death and there's a lot of time and opportunity to harness and so one of the things i'm trying to work on is um illuminating that fact that when we talk about dying we're not just talking about the last days mm -hmm. when you're bedridden and actively dying in a bed yeah. that is an important and distinct part of dying but dying happens before that yeah, yeah. and it's that's the challenge that hospice has because everybody associates hospice as just those final final days when in fact if we could get introduced could use that approach sooner 18 months two years out we could do so much to help yes. people people hospice palliative care is preparing for death yeah and a story like there's not nothing before that it's really hard what strategies have been working to go upstream either from yeah. your experience in ontario or from your colleagues that have been using last aid around the world don't Here's really an appetite. I'm coming back to the appetite. The appetite's out there. They just don't know where to go to get the information. So we, my work has all been about the community. So the faith community, the the um, cultural community, wherever we can go, that people will will at least listen to us, even just for a little bit. Um, that for sure, the long term care, you know, the uh, the the par the family councils and all that sort of thing are there. But that's that's late in the process. Those. To try and get to um, the rotary and the manual life, their lunch and learns, to all of those kinds of things where, where the the public is upstream. Um, and that's it's it's a it's a slugging, like you're going hard trying to reach those people. Um, just trying to find those communities that are open. Our strategy with Waiting Revolution was to try to really, if we could take a couple more steps upstream and not we know uh, we know they're dying 
or you have a life limiting progressive chronic illness that will not go away and you will die from it. But we don't have to start with that opener. We we're talking about you have a, a life changing diagnosis and here's what you need to know. And, and at some point we will talk about the actively dying process or all throughout, or we actually already are, but we don't have to color it. I wonder what your thoughts are of that approach. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're on the right track. I think um, everybody has some connection or some interaction with the healthcare system at some point, not necessarily at the end of their life, but at any point, and we're all frustrated with it. And, and people don't understand how it works and they don't understand what their role is in it. You know, and I did elder abuse work and worked in geriatrics for years. You had these really nice older adults that did exactly what the doctor told them. Mm-hmm. That's not the that's not the population now. The population that's spending more time with the healthcare system is our baby boomers, is our people who are going to push back, but they don't know how and they don't know. So I love your seven, your seven keys, especially love the reference to the wedding planner. I think like those are things people get. Those are concepts that are nothing to do with death. They, they make sense. Um, I just think it's excellent. So I think you're on the right track in terms of trying to get, get it out there. And there's just generally more interest. I'm uh, my partner that I do the sessions with Linda Hochstetler. um, She runs death cafes amongst many other activities and so on. And her, we used to have just a handful of people at the death cafe and the one that was just this last Monday, I think she had like 42 people. And I mean, we're going to have to start getting bigger venues because people are, I think, getting more curious, you know, hearing more about it with COVID and made singers. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the other thing I'd like, like that I think is important about this whole topic is that to go that next level if we all get more comfortable with end-of-life issues and thinking about what gives our life meaning we're going to be thinking about hopefully more of that now and getting more out of our life now and having better relationships now and you know I know I'm a bit of of a Pollyanna maybe but you know that's got to be a good thing like what are your hopes for last aid uh, for the future I hope we can roll it up across the country. Mm-hmm. I just hope it opens up the conversation in the community. I really, we need to talk about this and we need to be comfortable with it. So this to me is a way to do that piece by piece. You know, you both have a lot of years in the, of experience uh, as family doctor, as a social worker. What advice do you have for patients and families? I know you're talking about the public health approach in the community, but you probably interact with a lot of patients. So what advice do you have for them about how they can have a better illness experience? I think one of the things is to make sure that you are con- talking to your medical team about what is their illness? What's the natural course? What is a, you know, what's a good scenario? What's a bad scenario? Just to have some information about what they can expect and then what they can plan for. And then, you know, as we've said, there's tons of resources there, but first of all, they, as Shelley says, they don't know what they don't know, so they have to ask and realize that it's their right to know that stuff. I think people need to be their own advocate. I think they need to take that on. As I watch people coming in and out of the healthcare system, they're not asking questions. They're following the the plan as a standard plan, as you guys have talked about, and they're not asking for it to be tailored to their needs. They need to be their own advocate. And that starts with understanding and knowledge. Like the more you know about the system, the better advocate you can be. So that's why I think these kind of courses 
these kind of sessions, even if they're just conversations and not a course, people need to get familiar. And the problem is, as you said, Sammy, people don't want to look at serious illness until they have to. But we're all going to be in this system in and out. Yeah. We have to accept that. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't feel that uh, the system is really going to work in their favor. And so they may not just want to go there at all. I do 100% believe, as you said, it's the we have to we are we work with the healthcare system, but the public are the ones that need to know this. They need to be the ones who take this by the the reins and run with it. Mm -hmm. And that that appetite is out there. We just have to find those right those people that will help us do that. We need to find the connectors. Yeah. yeah, there. I, I Sienna and I refer to them as the the we need the Trojan horse. Like, what's going to be our Trojan horse that we can ride in on and pop out and say hi? <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Guess what? We're going to talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> well, Julie, Shelley, thank you so much for joining us yeah. today. Our pleasure. Here. Thanks so much for asking us. Yeah. Well, thanks for including us. Really yeah. great work. It's wonderful. You too. Right back at you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.